You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 27 through 30 this morning, what Grace uh, just read for us. Uh, if you are new here, my name is Jamin. I'm so glad that you chose to worship with us this morning. If you're, if you're visiting, uh, even online or, or tuning in online, uh, thank you so much for worshiping, wherever it is that you're worshiping. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, before we turn our attention to the text, I want to uh, take a minute just to talk about uh, COVID and want to talk about all that has happened and all that that means for our church. So there's been a bit of buzz this week because of uh, Governor Abbott's decision and his statement from last Tuesday. And uh, in that, um, got a lot of questions about what that means for us. I got a lot of suggestions about what that should mean for us. And um, I understand. I understand all that. It's, it's really important and it's good and right for, for us to care the way that we do. Uh, so I want to speak to that. Before I do, I, I want to share a concern that I have. And it's a concern that I have had that has only grown as long as this thing has gone on. And it's not, hear me, it's not directed at any one side of the COVID controversy, masks, protocols. I've actually seen this on both sides. We are in a season where some people, not all people, but where some people are tuning in to their church just enough to hear if their church affirms their opinion on the latest cultural controversy. And that's it. That's as far as involvement goes, just tuning in to hear. How are they going to weigh in, right? Not attending, not in community, not watching online, not serving, simply listening for where the church weighs in on whatever is buzzing at the moment. Like what I know is true is that because of uh, Governor Abbott's decision, some, some are going to tune in today or some maybe even came today or some are going to watch today or some are going to listen later this week only for how we're going to respond and tuning in only to hear how we're going to respond, but haven't participated in the life of our church in any significant way, haven't uh, attended our services, haven't watched our services, haven't you know, heard our songs or our sermons or been part of our communities since March of last year or February of last year. And that's not how it's supposed to be. That's just not how it's supposed to be. COVID and COVID protocols are not the most important thing happening here. The most important thing happening here is the gospel of Jesus and the people of God who are invited uh, to, to be changed deeply by God, by his love into whole people who share hurts with one another and who share their burdens and they find healing in the blood of Jesus and who are uh, changed by that message and then deployed into the world with a message of hope and healing that the world so desperately needs. And what has happened in this season for some, not all, what has happened in this season for some is that that has faded. That robust commitment to the people of God has faded, and my relationship to my church has been reduced to, well, I heard they do masks, or I heard they don't take COVID seriously. But there's no desire beyond that to engage or to belong, and that's just not how it's supposed to be. Listen, if you're looking for a place where you can express your opinion but not invest your life, try Facebook. Like, I hear it's great. There's pictures and tons of healthy people, right? But seriously, don't do that with your church. It's, it's bad for your soul. What God has for us here is, is just so much more uh, than listening for sound bites or listening for controversy and, and where we land, right? Okay, good morning to everyone. Glad you're here. Welcome to church. We are planning to make some slight 
changes in the coming weeks to our COVID protocols. So hear me carefully. Uh, we have been, since last June, in a practice of regularly reevaluating our guidelines. So from the very beginning, we opened up with one service, highly restricted. We've stayed that way. We added two services, but kept, largely kept our restrictions this entire time. But the plan has always been, let's ease these restrictions as soon as it's good and wise to do so. Uh, while I understand the necessity of the way things have been and believe convictionally in the necessity of the way that we've navigated this and, and would make largely the same decisions if I had the chance to do it all over again. It's, it's just, it's not ideal. Like I hate the restrictions, I hate the masks, I hate the, the distance that it creates between people, understand the necessity of it. But the plan has always been to, to try and ease as soon as it's good and wise to do so. And up until this point, that just hasn't, hasn't been the case. So let me tell you what is true. Uh, we are church leadership. We do not believe that COVID is over. We don't. Thursday evening, one of our elders, Bob Mangold, went, was admitted to the hospital with double COVID pneumonia and was for about 12 hours uh, unwell, very unwell. And we rallied and his wife, Denise, said, would you pray for him? And I told her, we will get you an army. And so we prayed, God heard our prayers and answered our prayers very quickly. And he made a dramatic turn for the better. He's going to be released in just a few days. Praise God. So we don't believe that COVID is over. We believe it's wise to continue treating things seriously, being considerate, especially considerate of those who are vulnerable. Uh, so we do, though, believe, while we don't believe it's over, we do believe it's improving. And the voices that, that we've trusted and, and welcomed into these decisions uh, have affirmed that it is improving if we think about decreasing cases, increasing vaccines. And so we think it's good and wise to take a small half step towards easing restrictions. Don't want everything to go away at once, not in a hurry. We want to be slow. What we're aiming for, here's what that half step is. On Sunday, March 28th, so today is the, not, the, not the 28th, it's earlier than that, whatever it is, three weeks from now. Sunday, March 28th, we're changing our 1115 service, this service, to a mask optional service. We'll still maintain distancing. Um, everything else, everywhere else in our church will stay the same, but people coming to the 1115 will have the option to wear a mask or not wear a mask. Many will decide to continue wearing their masks, masks maybe some masks. It's been a long day. Many will decide to continue wearing their masks, some will not, and for a number of reasons, we just need time to be able to execute on that decision, so it won't be until March 28th. Okay, I have two very specific asks of you. We have always had these conversations candidly as a church. We always want to be incredibly honest. Uh, here's two concerns I have, so two asks I have. Uh, one is an ask for help. This has been a season where it's been incredibly difficult to get volunteers. It's been incredibly difficult for our ministry leaders to have enough volunteers to be able to run their ministries, especially in our preschool and elementary ministry. That's also been true in our connections ministry. That's also been true in our groups ministry. And so what this will mean is that some people who are currently serving at this service will no longer feel comfortable serving at this service because they feel more comfortable in a service where masks are required. We understand that. We want to make space for that. And so what that means is that if you are one who is comfortable, or maybe you're one who's excited about a mask optional service, or maybe you're one who has been waiting for a mask optional service. We need you. We need your help. Uh, I am uh, concerned that we actually won't have enough volunteers to be able to pull off that service. And so as we make the ask, both this morning and the next few Sundays, uh, if that's you, will you please respond? Okay, more importantly than that, here's the ask. Engage. Engage. 
Uh, these are incredibly divisive times, incredibly confusing times. I'm on a group text with seven other pastors who pastor churches all over DFW. Uh, one, one guy, one poor guy is down in Houston. But uh, this week, a text went out about, that was passive aggressive. I'm sorry. I love Houston. I just like Dallas more. Um, so everyone asked, the, the, the text went out, what are you guys doing about COVID protocols, right? There's kind of a buzz and uh, everyone answered and there were seven different answers. Seven different answers of how churches are navigating this. We are all, all seven churches are situated in the same theological creeds. All seven churches situated in the same nuanced theological tribes. And yet, there's seven different answers because there's just so much room for disagreement and so much room for confusion. Everyone can find an expert or an article to support their position. Everyone. So what's needed is patience. This is where we landed. It's not where we say everyone else should land. It's just where we landed. We're not saying it's where you would have landed. What we need is patience and kindness and charity and conversation. Now, hear me, Citizens Church, that has been true about us. That has largely marked our church this last year. I just want to commend it to you again. If you have questions or concerns, engage. The leadership doors here are wide open. The lanes to honest conversation. In fact, myself, our other elders, we love those conversations because it means that you care enough about this place to lend your voice. So the doors are open. I need to take a very sharp turn right now. And it's a sharp turn to where we're going this morning in the passage. This morning we are talking about lust and we're talking about adultery and we're talking about sexuality. We are doing that because Jesus talks about it in his sermon. We've been walking through his sermon, and we've been walking verse by verse through his sermon, and this is what he wants to talk about on this morning because he talks about it in his sermon. But uh, we have young families, a lot of young families in our church. There might be a young family in the room who has kids in the room. There might be a young family watching uh, online right now, and your kids are in the room. And, and now I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to be vile. I'm not going to be inappropriate in how we talk about this. But it, it may be that I say things that um, force conversations that you as a parent are not ready to have yet. And so what I want to do is I want to pray, ask God to be with us, and also what that'll do is give you as a parent space to make a parenting decision. Maybe it means that, uh, you know, you'll step outside, or maybe it means that you'll, at home, you'll watch later on today when the kids run around, or maybe it means you, you put them in another room and, and just throw in a pile of Pop-Tarts to keep them busy or something like that. But I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get going. What I just believe in the bottom of my heart, God, is that when we listen to your voice, when we heed your word, we live in freedom. I believe that we as your people, the more we hang on your every word about everything that you care about, the more we hang on your every word that has been spoken about everything in our lives, the more deep we become, the more whole we become, the more freedom we live in. So I pray that we would submit to your voice again this morning, that we would welcome your voice in our lives this morning. You do not have condemnation for anyone today. You do not have sh compounded shame for anyone today. You have freedom. We love you. Amen. One of the reasons we preach through the Bible, one of the reasons we largely go verse by verse through the Bible is because uh, it holds me accountable as a preacher it holds us accountable as a church for talking about all the things that God wants to talk about. 
And so if we don't go verse by verse, if we don't go through books faithfully, exegetically, the danger is that we'd miss the whole counsel of God, and the danger is we would miss what God has to say, and we would leave unaddressed things that God cares about, and, and which means we would, we would lose his or not hear his voice in areas where we desperately need it. And I don't know of an example more true. I don't know of a, of a, of a more clear place to point on that than around the conversation of lust and adultery and just sexuality in general. Carl Truman, he's a theologian, a professor. He wrote a, a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, it's incredible. But, well, I've read the first chapter, and that was incredible. Anyone else, you're really good at the first chapter, and then beyond that, okay, praise God. Thank you. I'm not alone. Um, what he says is, what he identifies is he says, what we have been in, in the Western world at least, for the last 60 years is what he calls a sexual revolution. Not where um, people are breaking the rules on sex and sexuality, but where we've changed the rules. And so there's a new sexual morality that exists. There's a new morality that exists on sexuality than, did, than existed you know, 70, 80 years ago. And so what that means is that you, my friend, were born into a time in the world and born into a place in the world where one of the most common things talked about around you is sex and sexuality. So there are a lot of voices already in my head and in your head who have taught us what to believe about sex and sexuality. And we, the people of God, we care first and foremost about what God says. We care first about and we care most about what God says. So if you remember last week, uh, part of growing as a disciple, becoming a whole person is listening to the voice of Jesus, that the voice of Jesus has weight in our life because whoever has your ear controls your life. And that is certainly true about sex. In fact, I think especially in the climate today, one of the clearest ways to uncover who has authority in your life, one of the clearest ways to uncover who you've been listening to is to ask, what do you believe about sex? Are there rules? If there are, what are the rules? And from your answer, you can draw a direct line from your answer either to God's voice, to God's word, or from your answer to some sort of philosophy, or from your answer to some sort of ideology. And so God is not silent on sex. He says a lot about sex. There's a lot of confusion about it, and God's voice brings clarity, but that's, all, that's not all that God's voice brings. There's also a lot of pain in our lives around this issue, whether that's pain that we have experienced, pain that we've inflicted on ourselves. Like some are not confused about what God says. Some are just ashamed of what we've done, or some are just uh, ashamed of what's been done to us. And God's voice does not just bring clarity. It also, look right at me, his voice also brings healing. There are two ways that this conversation about sex goes wrong in church. Two ways it goes wrong. Both are devastating. One way it goes wrong is when what is said about sex is not true. When what is said about sex falls short of God's word, which is the pressure right now to adapt, to change, to, to just mirror culture, to make things more acceptable, and that's devastating, right? But there's also a way that this conversation goes wrong, not when, there's not, when it's not true, but when there's no grace. When what is said about sex falls short of God's mercy. I've, I've told y'all before, uh, and I talk often about my little brother who was born with a birth defect, and uh, because of his birth defect. He has had multiple surgeries throughout his life. Um, I think he's averaging about one surgery for every year he's been alive. And he carries on his body signs of those surgeries, and he carries those as scars 
And there's a couple different kinds of scars that he has. He has scars on his body from surgeries that went really well. Surgeries where a careful surgeon uh, operated on him, opened him up in order to bring healing in his life. He also carries on his body scars of surgeries that went really poorly. Uh, even scars where a surgeon was very careless with his body and very careless with his needs. And so maybe they opened him up more than they needed to. Maybe the, the wound was, uh, the incision was bigger than it needed to be. The wound was messier than it needed to be. And so there are scars on his body uh, from surgeries, but there are also with those scars that point to surgeries where there was a lack of care. Scars that were uh, from surgeries that did not just make an incision, but actually created pain that it didn't have to create. They were surgical, but not careful. And so the scar was bigger than it had to be. In my experience, is that it's very likely that someone in the room or many in the room have been scarred by conversations in church on sex and sexuality. They were maybe conversations that if they were true, they lacked mercy and they didn't have grace and they didn't offer care. And what I need you to know is that Jesus will wound us. He will. Jesus will open us up with his words. There are things he says, not just about this topic, but there are things he says that cut us. There is a surgery of the heart that Jesus wants to do, but he's always careful. He's always careful. He is surgical, but he is careful. He will wound in order to heal, and Jesus always leaves small scars. He always leaves small scars. He never makes an incision more than what's necessary. He never opens up he only wants to heal. Let me get this out early. Jesus loves you. He loves you. There is no sin in your life that he can't forgive. There is no guilt that he can't turn to innocence. There is no shame that he can't turn to joy. He brings light where things are dark and freedom where we're enslaved. This ends this morning. I just want to tell you how it ends. It ends this morning with an invitation for all of us to fly to the fountain of mercy and to fly to the fountain of grace for his covering because Jesus loves us. Anything he has for us today is for our good. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Everything that Jesus is going to go on to say, verses 28, 29, and 30, it relies on and it's situated in a biblical sexual ethic. So Jesus is already starting with his audience on a lot of common ground that they share together, right? They already know what God says about sex. So let's start there just to make sure that we're on the same common ground that Jesus is in verse 27. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. God invents sex. God is the one who... Uh, has a lot to say about sex because it's his idea. One of his first commands to humanity is to have sex. Uh, he made them. They were naked and they were not ashamed. He didn't make Adam and Eve naked and then you know, tell them to cover their eyes until Eve can find a robe or until Adam can get some pants on, right? They were naked. They were unashamed. And then they were invited to be fruitful and multiply. Because of the way that the church so often distorts this conversation, some people only hear about how dangerous sex is. Or some people only hear in the church the, the long list of ways to sin sexually. But the first word about sex in the world is from God, and it's a good word. Yes, it can be distorted, and we'll see that, but it did not start that way. It began as, as a good gift from a good God. The very first pages, that we, we, come with me. The very first pages, pages of the Bible 
tell us something about the body that's really important. It tells us that the body has dignity. The body is sacred. It's worth treating with respect. It's worth treating with honor. That The body is an intimate part of you. And when he says that they were naked and unashamed, what Jesus is saying is he's saying something that some people are, are in the world are just now catching up to, that there is a uh, unity between us spiritually and physically. There is a union between the material parts of us and the immaterial parts of us, our soul and our body. And he says the body has dignity. The body is sacred, just like the soul has dignity. It's why getting punched doesn't just hurt your face. It also hurts your feelings, right? It impacts your person because the body is as sacred as the immaterial part of us. The very first pages of the Bible also tell us something about sex. It says sex has design. The body has dignity, and sex has design. In the design of sex, one of the reasons it's designed the way it is is to uphold and honor the dignity of the body. So the design of sex is marriage between a husband and wife. And, and, and in the first pages of the Bible, it serves the purpose of pleasure between husband and wife, and it serves the purpose of procreation. It, it is given in order to have kids and to make a family, but also to enjoy one another. So sex did not begin in the context of compulsive lust, like, uh, like almost every other ancient Near Eastern origin story. It does not begin in the context of compulsive lust. It begins in the context of covenantal love. And God says it's to be reserved for covenantal love, for marriage, because in marriage what we say is, I'm giving you all of my life. That's what marriage is about. Marriage is this promise that says, I'm giving you all of, all of my life and all of your life, all of me and all of you. I think that's a, a John Legend song, but he makes a good point, right? It's me and you together becoming one before a holy God. Anytime I officiate a wedding, I felt this at my own wedding. Anytime I officiate a wedding, I'm so struck by how much weight vows carry. The, the language of vows is so weighty. It's for better or worse in sickness and in health. And, and the real marriage moment, the moment is uh, where the two actually before God are united in covenant is when love is sealed with the promise, I do. I do. Do you promise to love till death do you part or the return of Jesus? I do. Can you imagine being at a wedding and getting to the vows? Do you promise to love till death do you part? And the bride says, I might. Can you imagine getting to the vows? Do you promise to love till death do you part? And the groom says, if I feel like it, right? That would make for a really awkward reception, more awkward than, than most of them already are. That's not marriage language. I might is not marriage language. If I feel like it is not marriage language, the language that makes marriage is covenant. I am yours and you are mine. Sex, then, is saying, I am giving you my body with all of its dignity and its sacredness and I'm giving you my body as a sign that I've given you my life. I'm giving you my body as a, as a token, as a symbol that I've given you my life. Tim Keller puts it this way. His voice is so helpful on this and almost everything else. <laughs> Sex, he says, is a covenant good, not a consumer good. The design of sex is that it's a covenant good. The distortion of sex is that we've made it a consumer good. As a covenant good, he calls sex the sacrament of marriage. He'll talk about how it's a symbol that points to the reality that our lives are united in promise. It's not to be treated as a consumer good, but the distortion is that we make it a consumer good. And here's what that means. It's transactional. It's like, okay, here are my needs. If you meet those needs, here's what I will offer in return. And then sex becomes some sort of consumer transaction, right? The hypocrisy of that culturally is when what is exchanged for sex is money, we say that's illegal. But when what is exchanged is uh, approval or emotion or power or satisfaction, we call that freedom. 
It wasn't meant to be a consumer good. When it's a consumer good, when sex is a consumer good outside of marriage, when it's a consumer good outside of covenant, it is saying, I will do with my body what I haven't done with my life. Or I will do with my body what I have no uh, intention of doing with my life. Sex outside of marriage, it says to another, I just want your body. I don't want your life. I don't want your problems. I don't want your pain. I don't want to be a part of cultivating flourishing in your life. I don't want to be one of God's instruments in sanctifying you. I don't want kids with you. I don't want to discover how hard parenting is with you. I don't want to grieve a second miscarriage with you. I don't want to hold you when you're depressed. I don't want to fight with you or adjust to you or learn from you or grow old with you. I don't want any of that. I just want to consume you. I just want to consume you. The empty accusation against Jesus like the chorus of voices that would look at that teaching, that sex is for marriage, and that would accuse it of being boring or accuse it of being stifling or even accuse it of being oppressive, it's dishonest. It's a dishonest accusation. I think it's an anti-intellectual accusation. It's a lazy accusation, and I want to accuse the accusation. It does not honor, that accusation does not honor the dignity of the body and the person it does not honor the impact of intimacy on the whole person. It does not have the gumption or the courage to believe in and fight for love that is deeper than my impulses. It knows nothing of love that says, I will not consume you, I will covenant to you. It knows nothing of love that says, when the romance has faded, I am holding on to our vows. No, no, no. Jesus does not have a stifling view of sex. He has a high view of love. He has a high view of love. And he has a high view of people and a courageous commitment to lead them away from treating each other like objects, which is destructive. What's being sold right now as freedom, what's being sold right now as progress is, is ruining us. It's ruining us. Carl Truman, in, his, in, in the only chapter of his book that I've read, he says, uh, he offers a summary of the sexual ethic that surrounds us. This is not just the sexual ethic that marks kind of the pro progressive sexual vision. This is the sexual ethic that invades almost every part of, of our culture. While sex may be presented today as little more than a recreational activity, sexuality is presented at that, as that which lies at the very heart of what it means to be an authentic person. While sex may be presented today as little more than recreational activity, sexuality is presented as that which lies at the very heart of what it means to be an authentic person. So he makes a distinction between sexual activity and sexuality. And what he says is uh, sexual activity in our culture means very little, means very little. Sex is just recreational. What you do physically is just physical. But sexuality is everything. Sexuality, uh, your sexual wiring, your sexual desires, that lies at the very core of who you are and what makes you you. So here's our culture. Sexual activity means very little. Sexuality means everything. It's not true. It's not true. Sexual activity is not meaningless. The idea of sex as recreation is a devastating idea. And when it is believed by a society, it is a cancer in that society. Sex is never casual. What happens physically is not just physical. What happens to the body happens to the person. Any society that doesn't take that seriously, you know who suffers? You know who suffers? The vulnerable. The most vulnerable suffer. One of the things that happened as Christianity grew in the Roman Empire is you had a mass influx, a mass conversion of slaves in the Roman Empire. 
you had this mass influx of slaves into the church. I was listening to a historian talk about this a few days ago, and she said the Greco-Roman Empire uh, was dark and deviant in its sexual practices. Its, its sexual ethic was incredibly distorted, and slaves bore the brunt of that because slaves were told that their bodies did not belong to them. They were treated as if what happened to their body did not matter because the sexual ethic around them was one where it was consumer good. It was simply for satisfaction. It was simply a way to express power. And so one of the things that drew these slaves into Christianity was that Christianity taught them something about their body that they'd never heard. And it taught them something about their person that they'd never heard. They were told, you have dignity. Your body has dignity. That that sex is not a consumer good. It's a covenant good. And they're told that what was done to you is wrong. What was done to you and what's been done to you is an offense against a holy God. And, And so they are brought into the church with this gospel of Jesus and with this design of God for sex and for their bodies. And they respond to that in droves to find healing. Here's the point. Wherever the weight and impact of sexual activity is minimized, wherever it is treated casually, recreationally, it's always the vulnerable who suffer. John Mark Comer is a a pastor in Portland. He's a brilliant author, brilliant teacher, and he says, if you pay attention to the statistics, you can draw a direct line from the sexual revolution we're in right now that started 60 years ago or some, so however many years. You can draw a direct line from the sexual revolution to the breakdown in family, You can draw a direct line from the sexual revolution and its changing morality to increasing sexual assault, to increasing child abuse, to crippling anxiety as a result of sexual confusion, and a myriad of other heartbreaking trends. In other words, all this sexual freedom has amounted to a lot of oppression. All this sexual freedom has amounted to a lot of brokenness, and mostly it's amounted to vulnerable people being consumed because it's not true. It's not true. It's not meaningless. It's not designed for consumption. It's designed for covenant. And outside of it, it causes hurt. And and some of you, you know that pain. You know the pain of being objectified. You know the pain of being taken advantage of. You know the pain of being consumed. And then someone who tried to tell you that it's all in your head or someone tried to tell you that it was just your body or someone tried to tell you not to hold it in your heart the way that you know it's affected you. You have dignity. You have dignity. Jesus loves you and Jesus knows what's happened to you and Jesus by his patience and his grace and his gentleness has healing for you because it matters. It's not meaningless. It's also not true that your sexuality is the most important thing about you. It's not at the heart of who you are, what makes you you. What I don't understand, friends, I don't know how we got to a place where meaning in life is so thin that we define ourselves primarily by who we sleep with. How do we get to a place where meaning in life is so thin that we define ourselves primarily by who we want to sleep with or who we're bent to sleep with? And, and why? My question is, why do we just give that kind of authority to our sexual desires? Why not define ourselves by our violent impulses or another impulse or like our greedy impulses or our self-righteous impulses? That's not good news. It's not good news. The good news of the gospel says something opposite to that. The good news of the gospel says you find deep meaning in life, not being defined by your desires, but being defined by Jesus. 
being defined by what he has done, the purity that he lived out of. You're not the sum total of your desires. That's good news because you're also not the sum total of your failures. The banner over you is the blood of Christ who lived a perfect life in your place and now has uh, absolved you of all guilt and condemnation and punishment so that you can live free, not under the banner of be yourself, but deny yourself and follow Christ. God speaks a better word on sex. God speaks a truer word that is honest with, with, with even the things that we're beginning to see in front of us unravel by not listening to his word. Sex is for marriage covenant because God has a high view of love. He has designed a context where the giving of the body is only to be a symbol that we have already given our lives and the giving of the body is only to happen in the context of where we've given our lives. Okay. That was the starting place for Jesus in verse 27. He didn't have to do any of that work with his audience. They were already there. When he says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, he's speaking to an audience who already believes about sex that it's for covenant. So listen to where he goes next in verse 28. You've heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You hear the pattern that we started unpacking last week. You have heard, but I say that Jesus is trying to make us deep people. He's trying to make us whole people as we listen to his voice, submit to his voice, because whoever has your ear controls your life, and that's aimed at our hearts. And what that means, he's going to get below the problems at the surface, and he's going to go to the problems at the source. And what he does this week is, is the same thing. And, and to say it a different way, what he does is he's going to confront sin that we often hide behind thin morality. My kids love to play uh, hide-and-seek, and, seek. and uh, we were playing the other day, and I'm it. And so I counted to 10, said, ready or not, here I come. And I walk in the kitchen, and around our, our dinner table in our kitchen, uh, we have these uh, big white curtains that hang on the windows or by the windows, and they're uh, white and they're thin. And so because of all the light in the kitchen, they're basically see-through. And my middle child was hiding behind one of them. But I could see her, almost clear as day. So I walk in, she's hiding behind the curtain, and I say, Addie, I see you. And from behind the curtain, she goes, no, you don't. And, and I said, no, babe, those curtains are basically see-through. I, 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 can, I can see you. And what she thought was a good hiding place was not. What she thought was covering her was not covering her. What she thought was hiding her wasn't actually hiding her. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He says, don't commit adultery. His audience knows that. Most of his audience had never broken that command. In the first century, most Jewish people didn't cheat on their spouses. Most Jewish people did not have affairs. But what Jesus' point is, is that some of you are simply using that command as a thin morality. Some of you are simply using that command as something to hide behind. And he says this, I see you. I see you. No, you've never had an affair, but you have a heart that's filled with lustful desires and a mind that's filled with adulterous fantasies. And you think because you've never broken the command, you can hide your sin behind that. And Jesus says, look, it doesn't cover you, not before God, not before the Savior. Like, I see you and you're not hidden. There is a way, and this is especially true about sexual sin in our lives. There is a way that we rationalize sexual sin by hiding that sin behind thin morality. And Jesus goes after that. Maybe it sounds like this. No, I'm not waiting for marriage. But I affirm that the Bible teaches monogamy. And so I'll hide behind that. Uh, I am married and I am feeding some sort of emotional attachment with a coworker. I'm feeding some sort of emotional attachment with someone that's in my you know, friend circle, with someone that I'm not married to and I'm feeding that, but it's not sexual. 
And so we'll hide behind that. Uh, I occasionally look at pornography, but I'm not addicted, and so we'll hide behind that. I'm addicted, but I've never had a physical affair, and so we'll hide behind that. Or even in marriage, we can still have a consumer view of sex. Even if we are in covenant, we can still treat sex like a consumer. Like, uh, uh, no, I don't connect emotionally with my spouse. No, I don't invest spiritually with my spouse, but I still desire my spouse physically. And so even in covenant, that means I've made sex a consumer good, but I'll hide that behind, well, she's my wife. Or, well, he's my husband. So we kind of have to. And Jesus says, I see you behind all of that justification, behind all of that thin morality. I see you. I see the real you. And then what he says is he says, look, if we get down to the real root of this problem, anyone who looks with lustful intent has committed adultery in the heart. I love how one theologian said, he said, Jesus does not want to start with the fruit of sexual sin. He wants to start with the seed He wants to go where it begins. And so he says where it starts is lustful intent. And so where we all need to begin is not hiding behind thin morality, but searching our hearts for this very thing that Jesus says is adultery in the heart. Now, lustful intent is not sexual attraction. It's not just attraction in general. There's another word Jesus could have used to describe that. So remember, the Bible is not against sex. It's not against sexual desire. It's not against sexual attraction. God created it. There are entire scenes in the Bible. There's an entire book of the Bible devoted to celebrating sex and how God is good to give that gift. Here's what lustful intent is. Lustful intent is not just about attraction. It's about when a look becomes a craving to consume. So it's beauty. And I see, wow, there's beauty. Wow, That person's beautiful, but it's not just acknowledging beauty. Lust and lustful intent and lustful desires, they can't simply stop at attraction. It can't simply see and acknowledge beauty. It has to possess it. And if I can't do that in reality, I will settle for doing that in the recesses of my mind. It sees beauty and it has to possess it. It has to be worshipped by it. It has to receive worship from it. And so what happens is, is uh, before any of that ever comes out of our life as physical action, it happens in our hearts and in our minds as we create this thought life where every attraction becomes consumption. Where what I see with my eyes, I immediately log away to objectify in my mind and indulge in my thoughts. And so Jesus is doing, please hear me. He makes an incredibly important point about how we're wired. Before an action is ever an action, it's a thought mixed with our desire. In context, it means this. Every affair that has ever happened first happened in the heart. Every actual affair that's ever happened happens in the heart and the mind. No one has an affair who first didn't look, then crave, then consume, then objectify. So when it gets to the point of a physical affair, all it is at that point is rehearsing an action what's already happened in my heart. The opposite is true. The opposite is true. No one has ever lived a life of faithfulness who didn't first pursue faithfulness in their mind. The life of the faithful, the life of those who are growing in purity, the life of those who have made a covenant with God to obey him is the sum total of millions of unseen battles fought and won in quiet conversation with God about our thoughts and our desires. Pay attention to what you pay attention to. Pay attention to what you pay attention to. When, when Paul wants to sum up the gauntlet of theological argument that he makes in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, in, in verse 2 of chapter 12, here's how he sums it up. Therefore, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Pay attention to what you pay attention to and do not buy the lie that what you think and how you think won't eventually spill out into the open. That's what Jesus calls for in 29 through 30, to take seriously what's happening in our hearts, to wage war in our heart. He says it like this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better to lose that than to go to hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. It's drastic language, drastic. It's intimidating language. It's upsetting language, but it's saying this, fight your sin at the source. Fight your sin. Don't just uh, worry about the fruit. Dig out the seed. And it makes these two points. When it comes to sexual sin, take it seriously and make it known. Take it seriously. Don't diminish. Don't minimize the metaphors he uses. And they are metaphors. It's hyperbole. Cut off your hand. Take out your eye. Here's what it means. Don't diminish sin just because you don't immediately feel the consequences of it. Like if you knew that something was wrong with you and it was going to cost you your hand, you knew you had some sort of skin disease or something that might lead to amputation, how committed would you be to fighting that disease so that you keep your hand? If you knew that you had some sort of condition that would cost you an eye, how committed would you be to fighting for your eye? Hear Jesus. You know what will damage your life more than losing a limb. You know what will rob you of life more than losing your sight? A heart filled with unconfessed, unconfronted desire to consume, objectify, be worshipped by anything around you that's attractive that, that can become fodder for unseen sexual idolatry in your heart. It comes with the kind of destruction and comes with the kind of pain and comes with the kind of devastation that makes lost limbs and lost sight seem like the better option. Take it seriously and make it known. There's something brilliant that Jesus is doing here. He's saying what you should do is you should wear the battles that you're fighting internally, you should wear them visibly. This, what begins as an immaterial, invisible struggle that no one can see, bring that out into the light. Bring that from what is hidden and bring it out in the open, right? Fight, don't Refuse to lose another battle in hiding. Fight the war where everyone can see it. And what that means is that means confession. That means that people in your life know what this looks like for you. That means that you're willing to confess in the past, in the present, what lustful desires, the seeds of sexual sin in your heart Something has happened in the last 30 minutes for some of us. Whether you're listening later this week, watching online right now, or you're in the room right now, something has happened. As I've been talking, some of us have been having an internal conversation with ourselves. 30 minutes ago, at the very first mention of sexual sin, at the very first mention of lust, at the very first mention of hiding, maybe a sin or a habit or something in your past or an addiction in your present comes to mind. God brings a secret, something hidden in the mind, and the, and the argument starts about that past or about that present, about that thing that maybe only you know, about that thing that maybe only you do in isolation, or about that thing that you've sworn you're going to take to your grave. And what happens is everything in you says, keep it hidden. The thing in the past is no one's business. The thing I'm doing right now all by myself, it's not hurting anyone. But if I confess, then people will get hurt. That's how the argument always goes. That's how the rationalization always goes. People will get hurt if I don't keep this to myself. And hear me, there will be consequences. There will be consequences, yes. But there's pain both ways. 
There's pain both ways. Be sure you're not wrong about the pain you pick. My friend, the pain of confession is a different kind of pain than the pain of hiding. The pain of hiding is the pain on a path of distance from others and distance from God. The pain of compounded destruction with every step of the way. The pain of confession is different pain. The pain of confession is the pain on a path to being made whole again. If, if, if you only knew the stories in this place, if you only knew the stories in this church, even in this room of people who would stand and who would testify, I shared what I thought would ruin my life. I shared what everything in me said, no, 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 don't go down this road, right? I shared what I thought would bring ruin. I shared what I thought would end things. I shared what I thought would be the end of my life. And God took the ruin and he made restoration. God took the ashes and he created beauty. Like David saying, he made the bones that were broken rejoice. Jesus sees you. He sees you. And he wants to pull the curtain back in your life not to condemn you, to free you. There is no shame like the shame connected to sexual sin. I don't understand it, but I know it and I experience it. So the thought that Jesus sees me as I am, the thought that he wants to uncover, it's a terrifying thought. So would you remember that Jesus and Jesus alone, he combats shame. Jesus and Jesus alone, he forgives sin. He wounds only to heal and he leaves small scars. He uncovers us that he might clothe us in garments that we never have to hide and we never have to be ashamed of. Jesus lived the perfectly pure life for us that we could receive his mercy and grace. Jesus never consumed anyone. He never consumed anyone in his mind. He never consumed anyone in his life. He never looked at a woman. He never looked at a man with lust in his heart. And he offers his perfect purity in our place. He will uncover us to clothe us. He will only wound to bring healing. Like the old hymn says, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Stop hiding in things that compound condemnation, but hide in you, Jesus, who will cover me in love. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. My brother, my sister, he sees you. He sees you. But he sees you not to abandon you. He sees you not to overwhelm you. He sees you not to forsake you. He sees you to uncover you that you might walk in freedom. Fly to the fountain this morning. Fly to his grace. Fly to his mercy. Come to him for covering. Jesus, we need you. God in heaven, we need you. I ask, Lord, that by your mercy, that what would permeate this room, God. What would fill our hearts even now is a confidence that you are inviting us to walk in freedom, God. I, I just have no idea what obedience looks like for every individual in the room. I don't know what healing looks like for every individual in the room. I don't know what kind of confusion where there needs to be clarity. I don't know what kind of pain where there needs to be healing. There is one in the room who knows all, and it's you, God. And so would you, by your spirit, 
invite those who need healing to come for healing. Lord, would you, by your spirit, invite those who, uh, Lord, need the courage and the strength and the trust to confess. Would you give that to them that they might open up their mouths so that what is festering can be brought into the light and it might be touched, God, by your mercy and your grace because you love us. Would you lead us? We love you. Amen.